Today on Dolby Creator Talks, we've got something new for you. Our first conversation about visual effects. A few months back, we welcomed director Gareth Edwards and his now Academy Award nominated sound team on the show to discuss their work on his visionary science fiction movie, The Creator. We were just blown away by the movie and its soundtrack and its gorgeous visuals. So when we had the opportunity to have Gareth back on the podcast to talk about the film's Academy Award nominated visual effects, we jumped at the chance. Joining Gareth today is director of photography, Oren Soffer, industrial light and magic's visual effects supervisor, Jay Cooper, and Andrew Roberts, the on-set visual effects supervisor, also from ILM. What makes the visual effects work on the creator so impressive is the film's unorthodox approach. Rather than utilizing extensive previs, green screen studio shots, and fully rendered CGI environments, the director chose to film on location in Asia, documentary style with a very small crew, completely upending the usual methods for shooting VFX. The result is a gritty, visually stunning film made for a fraction of the cost of a typical Hollywood blockbuster. I started off by asking director Gareth Edwards how the unique way he wanted to film the movie affected the visual style and vice versa. It was a little bit, I always, the analogy I, I use in my head is in the UK, we built a tunnel uh, between England and France, the Channel Tunnel. And they had this great dilemma when they did it is, do they start from England and go to France or do they start from France and go to England? But both countries wanted the money to do it, right? So they went both, they went in both directions and they met in the middle and thank God it worked. Like there was this really scary moment when they scraped through the rock and they shook hands. And it, I feel like making a film is very much like that, where if you just go in one direction, i.e., oh, I've got this story and it's gonna be this, you know what I mean? It'll get you so far, it'll get you a certain type of movie. But I equally was excited about doing a film very differently and not like a big blockbuster, um, but having it feel massive in scope. And so it, in the simple way of explaining it was that um, when you make a big movie, you get this much budget and um, they you have about this that's like kind of a safety net that they put in a bank account or on a shelf in case something goes wrong. And I was like, can we make the movie with that and be really guerrilla and have lots of freedom and creative, you know, you know, freedom to do whatever we wanted and have keep all this for kind of like VFX and, and to add all the science fiction in. And so therefore go to real places in the world. And when you get the crew small enough, the cost of flying anywhere in the world is cheaper than building a set. And so suddenly all these, it just creates a completely different type of film. And so I was very much into that as a foundation for a story. And I'd say that where it really kind of really came together, I was, I happened to be in Thailand and a friend of mine, Jordan, who made the Skull Island movie, was in Vietnam. And he said, I'll come over to Vietnam. Um, it's amazing. So I did. I flew over and I, the holy trinity of science fiction is basically uh, giant, like aliens, spaceships and robots. And I'd done a movie about aliens and monsters. I'd done a movie about spaceships, i.e. Star Wars. And so I was like, I really want to do a robot film. And so I go to Vietnam and... As someone who never went, you know, obviously wasn't in the Vietnam War, my experience was pre previously was films like Apocalypse Now, Platoon. And I just started picturing every everything in that kind of war zone, but with robots. And I started to think there's a really exciting film here that visually is not like anything I've seen. And as a filmmaker, you're always looking for that gap on the DVD shelf that hasn't been filled. And there's only three left. And so, and so I was like, I think this might be one of those Blu-rays that could just wedge in. And so I just got really excited about it. And it, and it, and it, it was as much visually driven and, and uh, production style driven as it was story driven. You know, um, it was like the channel tunnel. It was, it was, we did it in both all directions at once. Well, that's a, that's a great analogy. So like normally on a film, uh, certainly of this genre and this size, you know, the way this works, Gareth is, you know, you obviously you go off, you write a script, 
you spend some time doing conceptual art. Maybe there's some storyboarding. Maybe you work with a previs company to map out some key sequences. And then you call your friends up at ILM and they review all that material. And then they do go through a, a bidding process and everybody agrees on the size and scope and scale of what's going to happen. And then contracts are signed and then you go shoot the movie. And then, you know, and then Andrew's on set to supervise the, you know, as the onset supervisor. This is not the way you did this at all. So I'm kind of curious about, you know, this this approach that you landed on and then sort of, you know, Jay, Andrew, you guys, the leap of faith that ILM then had to take in order to meet Gareth halfway in the middle of the channel tunnel to accomplish this. Like you were saying, you, you do concept art, you know, that's typically one of the first things that happens, storyboards, concept art. And then you spend the rest of the life of the film chasing that artwork. So, for instance, people look at it and they immediately say, well, this is science fiction. You can't, it doesn't exist. So we'll build all this and we have to build it in a studio. Uh, therefore, it's green screen. And you just get trapped immediately in the straitjacket of every, every big film ever. And everything's all green screen. And, and it was like, OK, we're not doing that. So what we're going to do, like, forget that we'll have concept art. But forget the specifics of it. Just trust that it will be look as good as this, but it won't be exactly this. We'll go around the world. For every scene, we will find a location that's the best location in the world for that scene. We'll shoot it there. And then we'll design it in post. And what this creates is a situation for the VFX company where you're kind of getting them to blindly agree that, okay, we don't know what the shots are. We don't know what the designs are. But you want us to sign up and promise that we'll deliver on schedule, you know, X number of VFX for this price tag. And also our price tag was low. And we were like, look, we can be clever. We can work backwards. We can do all these really efficient things. And I honestly thought we would be getting into bed with a visual effects company that was really naive and just started up and would become bankrupt by the end of our film. And, and ILM, uh, you know, Kiri, who I'd worked with on, um, Rogue One, she basically said, ILM contacted her and were like, how can we be involved? And she and she and me were like, you don't, you're not going to want to be involved. It's crazy. And they're like, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Wait till I tell you what I want to do. And then you can tell me if you want to do it. Yeah. And so, well, Jay will tell you, I mean, basically they they were crazy and they agreed to do it. We were crazy-ish. I, I, think, I don't think we were... Oh. Gareth, I think, gives himself a, he, he denies himself a little bit of the credit because the one reason why you do that, the one reason you have all of those guidelines and supports and um, rules effectively is because when you when you're typically working with a filmmaking team, they're holding you to the letter of the law, right? They're they're like they're holding up the concept art and saying, why doesn't it look like this? They're holding up the um, you know whatever images that you've done, why don't we have this? We, in the previous, there are six shots. We only have four, those sorts of things. And so the the trick of it is, is that you you have to find a willing partner. And so it, our part of it was, yes, we're, we're going to do the, we're going to get out of our comfort zone. We're going to shoot in a way that we don't necessarily have all the materials that we expect, all those sorts of things. But Gareth volunteered, no, 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 it's, when I when there's an easy way to do that this thing, I'm not going to ask you to build a, a full environment for it. We can just do pro, we can do projections of of art, or uh, if it's really hard to have a building there, we can scoot it to the left to get void roto. Or if you know we're going to ask for a lot of robots, but maybe we can get away with not having robots in the background. I only care where your your eye is looking. Sort of. So there are. It's not a hundred percent on us to that this was successful i mean a large part of it was sort of the give and take between the two of us and that i think is one of the more novel components of, of how this movie was made well that kind of tees up a question that i had for you guys which is this this unique way of working once i read about it and i was like well why doesn't everybody do this and then I'm, and then my next question was could you do this with anybody other than gareth who obviously has a background in visual effects knows what he's talking about knows how to design these sequences would it have would it have worked with any with any another i I, it's not that I want to replace Gareth, but I do I do really want other filmmakers to adopt this idea. And I think if they were if they had the right skill set, and it is a it is a difficult skill set because you you have to shoot knowing in your mind's eye that it'll work out later. You there, you have to have an element of faith that when you're framing for shots that you know the 
you know that there's going to be a helicopter landing or, um, you know, some sort of ship leaving or those, all those sorts of things. So you have to have at least that understanding of where you're going. But I do think there's, it is, it is an interesting enough idea that if you can partner in a way where, listen, we're going to be, we're going to be a, a pot of money with some skills, but we're not going to be able to hit every single, you know, they're not all going to be home runs. We're going to hit a lot of singles and doubles, but as long as we get the certain number of points on the board, then we're, as long as you're happy with that, we can do it. It's a very tortured analogy, I know. I know that there's this this legendary concept reel that that I've I've heard about that that Gareth, I I, I believe you use you sneakily paid for that as a location scout. But this sort of became like the proof of concept, right? For the piece. Gareth, can you talk a little bit about that reel and what, what you needed to accomplish with it? Yeah, I think it was I mean, there was a lot of reasons to try and do something like a proof of concept. What happened was the studio were very uh, supportive. But equally, kind of like, well, if this is if this is so good, why isn't everyone doing it? You know, there's everyone had that opinion. Everyone we spoke to, um, and so you felt like we needed to kind of prove this thing out. So we went on a location scout. We basically asked for a little bit of money. Can we go on a location scout? Me and Jim Spencer. It's just the two of us. I sneaked a camera. We didn't tell anyone, and we shot in seven different countries. And I just, it was like a weird. Um, arty holiday video where like you know like we'd be in cambodia and and there's some monks walking in the ruins and be like i'd run over and try and film them and and then ended up cutting this whole thing together it was just this like textural non-narrative you know holiday video and 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 then the idea was like hey, let's prove this theory out so i went to ilm with a begging bowl and said can you help us? And then we did basically did that process of working backwards of like taking frames from the film and James Klein basically would paint over the frames and design what the science fiction was. And then we would hand that over to uh, a few artists and, and the way it worked was so, so for instance, in that reel, there was a, there was a shot, right? For instance, where it was a giant futuristic city and having done these big films to do a giant futuristic city, what typically happens is they build a giant futuristic city and it takes months and they model every little building and it's a lot of work. And so what we did is we were in Tokyo and we filmed a shot in a train going past Tokyo. And then we kept a lot of the foreground and essentially just replaced the background with like a, we did a, like a 10 minute sketch. Like the buildings could be like this. And James Klein did it all like sci-fi, big mega buildings. And we give that to someone. They then tidied it up and made like what you'd call a map painting out of it, where it looked photo real, same idea, but photo real. And that got projected onto simple, like very simple uh, ge geometry so that it had parallax. It had a little bit of movement to it as the camera moved and it looked brilliant. And it and what would normally take a month took a few days. And so everyone was like, oh, my God, this might work. And and so it became this. It was a really useful thing to do because it came like a sheriff's badge during the making of the rest of the film where inevitably every time you meet someone you talk about something we don't need to do that let's do it like this um they would tell you like no you can't this and you would say on the test we did it that way and we didn't have any data we didn't have any tracking markers we didn't have any permission we, we was just a guy with a camera that was it and it looked great and everyone knew that and so then it, it was a really useful way of of shooting down the inevitable constant roadblocks of like we don't make films like that um which i think would have ground us to a halt otherwise Oren, i know that you collaborated with uh greg fraser uh on the on the film can you talk a little bit about that what what, what does that what did that mean on a practical basis and 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 how did you guys work together yeah absolutely um i mean my involvement came about first and foremost because greg um due to the moving uh, target of the shooting schedule for this film, ended up having to go off to shoot some uh, indie movie in the desert. Some little low-budget indie movie that's opening in a couple weeks, right? Yeah, we, we know that one. Yeah, so so the need emerged for another DP to, to be on set, but the the job of the DP on this job was, uh, on this show was completely unique, like compared to anything I think either of us had done before. Um, and it's because of the nature and the way that, Gareth wanted to shoot the project. And I think, you know, sort of in the same way that they're describing the visual effects approach, the cinematography approach for the film was, was very similar. 
instead of taking the typical approach for a film of this size, which can be quite prescriptive in terms of the cinematography, everything is boarded or pre-vised and you're, you know, sort of just aiming at, at those, capturing those targets along the way and, and basically just filling out the blank holes of, um, of a pre or a shot list. The goal, the stated goal for this project was, no, 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 we're going to go out and shoot this like a documentary. And we want it to feel like a documentary. We want to feel the immersion and the reality of this world that's being built. Um, some, some of it practically, some of it be with location and some, and a lot of it with visual effects. We want that tangibility and that, that grittiness and that practicality of it. So it's like, how do we shoot a film, a sci-fi film um, like Terrence Malick would, or, you know, one of our big references was, was Baraka, uh, a do- which is a, um, beautiful kind of stylized documentary from the early nineties, uh, um, by Ron Frick, the cinematographer of Kyanaskazi and Gareth's, um, sort of sizzle reel, uh, pitch video test film was kind of like Baraka with robots. Like that was, that's what it felt like watching it. And, I think when I was sent that initially and and discussing it with Greg, you know, our conversations about how do we kind of accomplish this visually is like, how do we shoot the film to make sure that it has the same feeling as the footage that Gareth got on his own traveling around these countries, which is pure documentary footage, knowing that when we're on set, it's not that simple. We have actors, we have props, we have a script, like there's things that you need to get. There's, you have the straight points that you actually have to get across, right? Yes. Exactly. There's benchmarks that you have to hit, but we want to maintain that spirit. Like we want to maintain that look and feel because that's so instrumental to the construction of the whole world. That's instrumental to the visual effects approach. It's, it's everything. And in addition to that, Gareth is operating the camera on the film. So Greg and I's job becomes a lot different than the sort of traditional cinematographer's job, which is to stand around on set and look at a previs or a storyboard and say, okay, well, to do this shot, we'll set up the, sh- the crane here with this lens and we'll move the camera and we'll practice that. It wasn't like that. Our shooting approach was, it was sort of what Jay was alluding to before, where you go out and gather material and you know that not all of it's going to be a slam dunk. But what you're looking for is, we always talked about the analogy of sifting for gold. It was like every day on set was like taking a big sieve into a riverbank and then just shaking it out and shaking it out. And a lot of the takes and a lot of the shots that we were getting were exploratory. It was, it was fishing. It was looking for moments of authenticity. And when we would find one, like that's a gold nugget. Okay. So this, this shot, like the elements just align the timing of the tilt down. We'll, we'll add something there later and, and then it lands on the character and these evolving shots that kind of lead from one to the other or these beautiful moments where like for example the farmer in the field that like turns his head perfectly and of course on set he's a real person but you can already imagine knowing the theoretical design of the simulants that are going to have the hole in their head that you're going to get this great moment when he turns his head into a profile and you kind of reveal the the hole that wasn't necessarily planned. I mean, it was just something that emerged from creating the reality of that situation and filming it and iterating it until we get that moment. So Greg and I's job was really to support that process and to make sure that Gareth and um, Andrew and the visual effects team on set, Jay, everybody involved, basically had everything that we needed while keeping the footprint as small as possible to kind of stick to that mission statement of we want to shoot this film like a gorilla kind of small indie independent documentary and we want to maintain that feeling but still make sure that we have everything that we need in terms of crew and equipment and support to a- achieve the film and accomplish the film in that way and give Gareth the tools that he needs in order to film the movie in that way. Oh and in terms of the collaboration so Greg obviously wasn't on set physically and I was but um it was basically a three-way communication between myself Greg and Gareth all the time. Uh Gareth and I are sort of dealing with day to day things on set uh, in terms of um, decisions uh, of specific scenes or specific shots. Um, The three of us work together very heavily in prep to make sure that we're all aligned on the approach and have all the tools that we need. Um, And Greg and I would then check in pretty much every day, just assessing the footage, looking at what we did, um, talking about lighting setups for the following week, whatever it is, just the little minutia to take that burden off of Gareth's shoulders and, and, and help out in whatever way we can and support uh, our director. 
Um, and also working with, with Andrew on set to figure out solutions for interactive lighting. So whenever possible, we, with lighting specifically in terms of, um, holograms, lasers, like anything that we know is going to be added with visual effects. Uh, we want to have an interactive lighting component to that on set as much as possible, but finding ways to do that, that are very scrappy and quick and indie in their approach, I think was part of the fun and part of the challenge. Um, and Gareth definitely held our feet to the fire to, to like stick to that mission statement. And um, the, the, the results are great because visual effects were able to design things to what we lit on set instead of chasing some, some concept art or some previs. It was the perfect example of how uh, integrated this process was where, you know, whatever interactive lighting our rig would be doing on set, visual effects could then create something that would match that instead of having to go the other way. So it was really cool to see the final shots come in and be like, oh, that's what they did. That's really great. Like that worked out really well because we had to throw in a light last minute or something to get some interactivity and it, it, um, they, they did something really creative with it and twisted it. So, uh, yeah, it was really cool. Um, Greg was also very instrumental in working with ILM to set up our virtual shoot. Uh, so we, we had a traditional, um, process stage and stagecraft component to the film that took place at the end of the shooting schedule at Pinewood Studios. So Greg, um, while prepping uh, Dune, was also working with ILM and working with our production designer, James, to kind of build the physical sets um, at Pinewood. Uh, we had our whole UK team pre-lighting and working with ILM to create the virtual loads that Gareth and I would then log on to uh, a virtual VR session from Thailand in the middle of the night to check on the progress. And it was it was a very kind of multinational um, interactive process, but I think in the end it worked out great. It was very ha handy to have another DP sort of spearheading that while we were in the jungle um, getting footage. Amazing. I, I want to come back to the um, to the actual sort of the third act of the film and the, the different methodology uh, with that. But uh, before we go any further, Andrew, I want to bring you into the conversation. So, uh, you know, Warren was saying that, that you handle a lot of interactive lighting. I, so I had this notion that in in the in the other paradigm, the way other people make these movies, the role of the onset visual super you know visual effects supervisor is you're there to kind of like you know make sure that the the, the agreement is being adhered to that the film is being shot in a way that it's going to flow smoothly through the VFX pipeline later on, and obviously that's a different model than than the creator. Uh, you know, w was made under. So tell me a little bit about like what, you know, your, your day on the set, you know, w what were you trying to do to make sure that when the material got back to ILM and the crew there that, you know, you were capturing as much information as possible so that, you know, cause obviously the idea is you want to give Gareth the, the, the ability to be as flexible, do what he needed to do with the camera, but not let everything be just a bespoke by hand nightmare once it got back to, to ILM. From the outset, it was clear, and John Knoll explained to me that those guardrails um, wouldn't be there, that um, at times I would be there to bear witness more so than to, um, you know, um, control or, or, or constrain, and that Gareth did want to take this fresh original approach uh, to shooting this film. And so there would need to be flexibility um, on my part. Uh, you mentioned the concept reel. I think that was something that came up a few times to my chagrin sometimes where it'd be, you know what, Gareth did this and he didn't, you know, he didn't get anything. So, you know, don't, don't worry about it. I'm sure they were like, do you even need the, those four dots? Come on, <laughs> right. they, they didn't use any of them in the concept reel, right? <laughs> I did have to sneak some dots in a few times, uh, right, Gareth? Yeah, there was the, on the first day of filming, I got up to Madeline, who's the little kid in the movie, and we said, no dots, no dots, no dots, no dots. We're not doing a dot movie. And I go up and I'm filming her and I'm really on a close-up and I'm like, wow, I didn't even notice she had a freckle here. <laughs> and a freckle here. And I was as I was filming her, I was like, she's supposed to be made in a factory. She probably shouldn't have freckles. And I just went, we'll just shoot this. We can delete them later. I'll go speak to makeup as soon as this takes over. And as soon as the take was over, I was like, I went up to makeup and was like, oh, um, Madeline's got some like freckles. I don't know if we could just quickly get rid of them for the, they were like, oh no, no, VFX told us to put those on. <laughs> <laughs> VFX freckles. Yes, I love needed it. those. Whereas typically you would have, you know, a very set um, 
layout. Um, we've got the camera, we've got our, our talent, and then there's a backdrop. Uh, maybe you're going to have a you know a very specific move, um, and then at the end of the take. You know, I would take measurements of distance from camera to subject, what was the tilt inclination, and then um, take some reference photos of what was back there and, and, and then pass that information on recorded in FileMaker Pro um, for the VFX team. Gareth did have these long takes where he's hunting for the perfect angle, and we might start off um, with the characters framed a certain way, um, but then over the course of um, the, the rolling takes and having them reset, um, each time it would be a new angle, a new position. Um, and so that single back backdrop wasn't something that I could rely on. So I had to take more of a, call it a spherical approach to the environment where um, I would take the camera from Gareth once he um, filmed his primary action and try and retrace his steps to just shoot some tiles um, and then also shoot HDRIs or virtual backgrounds. Um, try and just kind of get a, a snapshot um, of the environment so that there was material that I'd be able to, to pass on to onto, onto the team. Um, we would have conversations in the morning. Um, Oren and I would normally ride together uh, to set in, in, in the van. And so we would talk about um, the shot list or the plan for the day. And then over breakfast, Gareth and our first AD, Scott, um, we would all kind of go over what the plan was. And if there were shots or setups that had key visual effects components, then I'd make sure the first AD knew. Sometimes I'd have to hold up a little um, sort of sign to say, you know, clean plate, HDRI, I need that after this. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'd prod him and just um, make sure that I was able to get in and, and capture the material. But it really was understanding that Gareth is going to be free-flowing. He's going to shoot this movie his way. Gareth, the phrase you used when we first spoke, when I met with you and Kiri, was that you didn't want the tail wagging the dog. We weren't going to stop shooting if QTake, um, the the transfer um, software, stopped working. You know, if Video Village couldn't see the screen, but Gareth was ready to go, we're going. Um, and so I understood it was, don't get in the way, you know, capture what I can, be available as a, a creative advisor if things come up that Gareth needs my support on, um, but that we're not doing things the way we normally do. And I had to sort of accept and go with the flow there. This Gareth guy sounds like a nightmare. Like... <laughs> he was all right. You guys don't want to, you, you don't want to comment on that? He has other strengths. I'm sure he has other strengths. Well, Andrew, I think you answered, you, you basically started to answer one of my, one of my just needly questions about this, which was, I mean, I'm so captivated by the visual design, uh, especially of the simulants. And of course, you know, the first time they turn, you know, their head and you see this mechanism and you can see right through the, you know, through to the background wall. And I thought, oh my God, how, you know, cause obviously when you create that, you know, at, back at ILM, you know, you're removing part of the actor's head digitally and now you're seeing all the way through the background wall. So it was like, how did all that material get generated? But I think you answered the question, which is like you were, you were diligently capturing as much plate material as you possibly could. When I could. It's a tricky thing. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've learned is that the, our, our paint team is just phenomenal. Yes. And if it didn't exist, they would find it in other takes or they'd find it from, you know, the, one of the benefits of the way Gareth's shooting is he's shooting these really long takes sometimes upwards of a half hour, 40 minutes or so. So usually in that sort of hunting, you know, we, we got lucky and almost by definition of the way that the movie was shot, there's always a view of the set from a different vantage point. And usually there's one, you know, there's a couple of frames you can steal here or there. It sort of, which sort of helps self, uh, self, uh, correcting in that regard, which is really nice. It was great knowing that we had the support of the, the paint team because Gareth was so nimble that the, team was so there would be long takes but because it was such a packed schedule um i learned this sort of pretty quickly on the first day uh, that they were shooting this was in the am drew's his office the adjacent to the um, ai factory and uh, i'd mentioned to the first ad okay i'm gonna need to take some measurements and he gave me the thumbs up and wasn't really sort of paying attention to me it's the first day everyone's just trying to see how this thing is going to work and flow um and so gareth got his takes and then i'm standing by the door and i'm letting people file out so um sturgill and he comes out and madeline um, and gareth sort of walks past me and then behind him are people carrying um, like dolly track and cameras and um 
like, wait, I, I need that. So I realized that um, just we were moving so quickly, um, there, there often wasn't time um, to, to capture everything. So I got what I could when I could. It was triage at times. So having um, the paint team um, and the layout team um, there to support me was uh, was awesome. I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it without them. And by the way, I just wanted to, to add that one of the most impressive things for me to see with the simulants specifically was the lighting recreation on the inside of the cylinder, which is something that you wouldn't necessarily think about at first, but becomes so would be something that would be so obvious if it wasn't perfectly replicated. But it's very tricky because you're adding an axis that that doesn't exist on set. There's no reference to a metallic surface that's horizontal to the rest of the environment. Your lighting references on vertical skin tone or clothing. And then you're adding this completely other angle like in this space. And they did such, when these shots were coming in, like the level of detail of recreating the lighting setups so that the reflections and everything on the inside of this non-existent surface were spot on was so mind blowing to me. And also very difficult, I think for Andrew, because our lighting approach is very similar to our shooting approach. A lot of natural light, available light, changing lighting um, conditions because of that with some very small touches, like very minimalistic additional lighting just to give everything a little bit of shape and a little bit of curation because we still wanted it to look cinematic, not just flat. So it's subtle lighting work. It's not like your typical set where you step on and there's big lighting units that you can draw a diagram and recreate it later with virtual lights. It's like, it's a lot more subtle than that. And so, and, and often changing and malleable depending on where Gareth's moving with the camera. So we're lighting basically for 360, but adjusting the lighting levels depending on which direction within the 360 we're looking on the fly. So somehow in all of this, Andrew, in addition to the references and the, the tiles and the HDRIs was also just perfectly tracking the lighting. And then the team recreated it perfectly in every shot where there's a simulant, they're recreating the lighting. And it's, it was really impressive. The thing is, that's interesting about that is it's technically not perfectly recreated because what happens is you have an actor on set who's a robot or an AI, they've got this big thing missing in their head. And when they finish their take, they leave, right? And then Andrew comes on with a silver ball, basically capturing the reflection, reflection so they can do this, what's called HDRI thing in the computer afterwards and recreate all that lighting. The problem is we, when we were filming, we never had someone with a hole missing from their head. Um, we did speak to Maddie's parents about if we could do it surgically because it would save us a lot of money, but she wouldn't agree. So we didn't have that. And the reality is what would happen is ILM would put that shot together and they would, they would copy the lighting on the set and you'd look at it and you just go, Hmm, it's okay, isn't it? But it's not great. And then what we would realize is that if we, if the, we really had that on set, Oren would have brought a light to have come through the head to create a little rim or something that really caught your eye that there was a hole there, but we didn't do it because it wasn't there. And so if you, if you're like a slave to the literally like correct lighting, it doesn't look good. And it was a very interesting exercise with ILM learning that it's not about being correct. It's about being right. Which, you know, it sounds the same thing, but it's really not. Yeah. I actually like it better thinking that we did it correctly and it was perfect. But the <laughs> truth is probably a little bit, I feel like I'm ruining Orange Day by saying this. No, we, no, the opposite. We've become really good cheaters. And I think that what you're really, what you're striving for is not a, um, a technical reconstruction. What you're striving for is the same way that when Orange's lighting a scene, he's trying to shape and accent is that we extend that into the computer world. And, you know, there's a lot of like little kick lights and we're trying to give like these little kisses of detail to, to show off like a dimensionality. And so that was the thing that we, we did in the, in the computer world. And that was something that, and that made those shots really sing. Recre you know, the other component is we would recreate the outfits in the computer and then that would become an element of the bounce light. So secondary global illumination would would you know kick into her metals in the head, right? Because that's part of it too. You get a reflection off of people's wardrobe or or and 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 their skin, their skin yeah, tone too. Exactly. Light bouncing off of this, and yeah. While we're talking about the simulants and the 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 head design, I'm just so I, it's such a visually arresting 
um, visual signature of the film. And I'm kind of curious about the development of that look. Gareth, you know, obviously you said that, that that was part of that concept reel. Tell me about designing that, that specific look. Were there some blind alleys that you went down, some experimentation that netted you out at this particular design that you ended up with at the end? Yeah, I mean, James Klein takes credit for it, but what happened was um, we did a load of experiments and the simplest way to explain it is in Photoshop, we would have two layers. So we would have a, a still from the film or a photograph of someone like from the movie usually, and then we would align like some very simple, very generic uh, chrome skeleton thing, you know, like basically un the mech underneath the skin. And so then we would just, with that behind the skin layer, or the, the photograph, we would just start rubbing out parts of the head and trying different things, like maybe get rid of this bit, maybe that bit. And what you learn pretty fast is it's not really up to you what you do. You can't just do anything. It looked terrible. And that it's really an instinctive reaction. Like, you know, you, you can't, it's more like you try something and go, that, that looks good. Okay, that looks no good. And you find that it's really about following the natural forms of the head. So like curves in the skull and, and the ear, you very much expect a circle here. So we had to follow that curve. If we went straight, it feels, didn't feel organic. And it, and it, and it was important that these characters, you, you didn't get into what was called uncanny valley. Like you, you respond to them warmly, you know, with a warm feeling. You wanna, you can hug them, and so there was things like that. Another one was like classically in these movies, um, the tempting thing to do because it makes in visual effects life a lot easier is just to do the skin divide around the follow the jawline, yeah, and the jaw, and and then it's life's really easy, right? But the problem was is then it to us it and it's fine for a lot of other films, but for our movie it wasn't. It, 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 it you sort of reject that person. They're a little bit like um, a decapitated person. There's a little bit something um, like the living dead about them that you don't really want to hang out with them. And so we found if we put some skin in that connected the throat to the body, it was then okay. But then, you know, the temptation is, well, let's put the skin all the way to here. And then you go, no, 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 because now it just looks like a person, you know, and, and we're not making a robot movie. And so life would have been a lot easier to have done a design where the skin goes to here and all this sort of thing. But it's really, it's not an AI film. So, so we, as painful as it was, we kept like doing these designs where, you know, ILM would have to figure it out, but um, it was, you know, we were making a robot film. And so there was, it was, you needed to see that person and instantly know their robot. And the reason there's a hole through their head. So I didn't want it to people to think there was makeup, you know, and that we'd done it with prosthetics. It was like, there's something so arresting about it where it's like, whoa, when you see it, like there's no way there's, and everybody who was AI had that. I didn't want this to be a film where, oh, is John David Washington AI? You know what I mean? Like I wanted it to be as completely clear. Like there's, this is, this is the technology that they can't seem to do it without a big giant hole through the head. I was a little bit nervous. I mean, that's, the, that's part of the reason why I kept on, I think, trying to pull it pull the skin farther and farther back because funny things happen when you're when you're in computer graphics all of that skin moving around that edge has to track and if it doesn't you give away the gag really quickly and it starts looking like it's a it i, I refer to it as scissoring the two layers are sliding against each other and then it looks like a roto edge it doesn't feel like there's a a backing to it or the physicality and that was the thing i was afraid of we did some other things along the way that, that I think improved it. We built like a structure, a, me a mechanical structure with almost like a plastic backing that you can see to sort of support it. And then when you view from the edge, we would animate what would drive the tongue and the jaw so that there was a mechanical structure that supported the facial, the facial, uh, well, not muscles, but at least the jaw and, and, and components. And that was a, that was at least our idea of how we could sort of, make a world that these two things lived alongside one another, the mechanical component. The other thing we did was, uh, and we're getting a little bit in the weeds, but we took for, for some of our older actors where your skin is always moving around. I'm a great example. Like my skin slides all over the place and droops and all that kind of thing. You're talking to me too, but yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, all of us, I think at some point we're fighting gravity, um, but we tacked it into the head and we would, 
we with a, a combination of reprojection techniques and uh, digital double renders, we created these hard surface where we would we would tack down the skin, and then we would uh, we'd feather out of that. So as you went to the front, the beginning of the face or the front of the face, you had full movement. And then as but as you drop back down to the edge, we reduced that movement out. So it had a tacking piece. And that's a that's a subtle thing that you have to do. Otherwise, you you're left with two really bad options. One, it feels like you're wearing this flesh mask, like almost Freddy Krueger, or the other one where you lose all the emotion of the of the of the performance of the actors. I just wanted to add also from my perspective. You know, the the thing with the whole the design, I obviously have no involvement in, in the design of this, but as an observer um, and as someone who was working with Gareth on the, the, the visual design of the film overall, there's a lot of um, emphasis on and attention to uh, silhouettes and negative space across all the design work that Gareth and, and James did in the film. And it's something that also carried into the the lighting approach simplistic lighting, creating light and shadow and creating very delineated shapes and almost a sim thinking about a frame as a two-dimensional image with simple geometry. And the simpler you create that, the easier it is for an audience to digest what they're looking at as, as opposed to an image that's overly busy. And so the use of negative space in the design work, the simulant holes, the, the buildings, the props, the guns, the weapon, like there's a lot of it throughout the film just as a running motif. I think is it's just a testament to um, Gareth, James, um, ILM, everybody's design ethos with the film. Like there's a lot of thought that went into um, how you digest images and shapes and concepts and and, um, and silhouettes of props, cost, costumes, characters, uh, ships, locations, spaces. And it's very, it's very George Lucas-y, like it's very um, original Star Wars design ethos, like very easy shapes to identify like this is this this is this never heard of him yeah some guy <laughs> it was really cool to see that just as, as somebody who then you know we were tasked working with gareth once that camera's on up and filming things to to carry that ethos through the way that scenes are lit the way that sets are lit to make sure that we're carrying that that visual clarity and simplicity kind of through the whole film so that when you're cutting from things in an action scene you know where you are, you know what you're looking at, you know who's a simulant, who's not, who's who you're rooting for, who you're not rooting for. It's all part of the, the overall design ethos. I'm taken by this um this idea, uh, Gareth, that you that you had there when you were, you know, directing uh, a lot of the background actors that, you know, you didn't tell them they were gonna be human or they were gonna be uh, you know, a simulant or they're gonna be a full robot. Did that, was that a part of, did that come to you after doing that concept reel and seeing sort of with those run and gun shots? And then you took those, some of those people that were in those and you made them into simulants and just sort of the, 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 the eerie humanity of those performances. Is that, is that where that concept came from? Yeah. I think something that was born out of that test, which was, I suspected would happen, but it, it was proven really strongly was that when people aren't, actors and they're just existing in the real world one of the most exciting things or the thing that feels fresh because when you're doing a science fiction film so many especially robots and things everything's been nearly done you know what i mean and it's like what can you do that's different and it felt like the thing that really felt like i have never seen that before was a completely naturalistic performance i.e someone even just behaving or existing in their life like a documentary and they're not doing anything over the top they're just smoking a cigarette or something and, you know, in, in the test, this guy just looked at camera, like, why are you filming me? And he just carried on smoking. And then we turned him into AI. And it was one of the most, like, thought-provoking pieces of video I'd seen in VFX world for quite a while. And so it was like, well, we have to have that in the movie. Like, as in, we have to have people just being completely natural because there's such a temptation when you do VFX. You're spending often tens of thousands of dollars on a shot and therefore you really want to show it off and you really need it to have an important story point and all this sort of thing but throwing it away the more you throw stuff away and i think i feel like i learned this from george lucas growing up was that the more you throw these characters and these ideas away the more the audience goes they're everywhere do you know what i mean it, you know like like i bet if they panned right there'd be more there won't be they're literally it's on the edge of frame that's all there is 
but your brain starts to think this is a really rich world full of so many things. And so you've got to throw some of them away like that. And, and it just got super exciting. And so the more, when anyone came to set, it didn't quite happen, but if people came to set and they were like, okay, you're a robot. And the second they would start to talk to me and go, so am I like, how do I move? You know, uh, how do I, do I speak in my normal voice? You know, and you go, no, no, it's, um, these is AI, they think they're a hundred percent human. Like they do think they're equal to us, completely the same. They've got a soul, everything like forget it's a sci-fi movie. Imagine it's, um, a drama, you know, a war film or something. And, and to the point where I got bored of having this conversation. And so I was just told everyone they're a human, you know, and like, and we would go to villages. And that's one of my favorite stuff in the movie is we would go to Cambodia and shoot kids in a village with Madeline. And, and it was so exciting filming that stuff. And it feels so authentic. These are real villages, you know, from a real floating village in the middle of, uh, near Angkor Wat. And, and we, and we're shooting them and, and it, it feels like a documentary, but it's also beautiful and cinematic. And then, and then um, just going, oh, when, when she's an AI or when that person like playing with grain in a bowl becomes a robot, you know, or in the Himalayas or whatever it is, like that's when it felt like I've not seen that in a movie before. Like that, that's, if we're bringing one thing to the table with this film that hasn't come before, I think it's that. I think it's that naturalistic, nearly documentary style um, performances from like CG characters, basically. Jay, I'm curious from your perspective, what did that complicate things? Or did, I mean, obviously you're getting a very different kind of performance. We try to plan as much as we could. We plan for all of the the simulant characters. We put tracking dots on their heads. But you know, Gareth would roll in like the woman putting her hand in rice or. I mean, one of the more complicated ones that was throwaway was um, a one one robot is unwrapping a candy bar, right? So you've got to, all right, so we have to build a, a hand that is sort of the same size, you know, a match mating object. And then we have to do the dynamics of unwrapping the candy bar. And there's, it's kind of funny when you think about it, like the, the process, if you sort of just wrap your head around it, like, Finger goes under, finger goes over, finger goes under, finger goes over, just like the whole the little ballet of that. It's it's tricky animation to match. And then we have to do it for a hand that we're not really sure what the size of it is. We see, and there's all these little you know, tricks that we can do to paint things in and out. So it's tricky. It's tricky, but it's it's totally worth it because I think Garrett's like, right, you, you, there are no other movies with a robot putting its hand through, you know, playing with, with grains of rice or unwrapping a candy bar for a kid. It's like, and the, one of my friends remarked to me is like the shot, like it, it's, and I was telling Garrett the story, it's the shot of, of a uh, sort of a mother robot, or at least you're projecting sort of a mother robot and a child walking up a path in, in Nepal. It's like, it does something. There's like this amazing emotional response because you get like this level of connection and there's a, um, a humanity to it. And it's completely, at least, Gareth, am, am I right? That's not a scripted moment. No, we were we were filming in the Himalayas. Um, we were like ten thousand feet, and 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 this old lady and this little kid went by, and we we were trying to film people, and you know, you being respectful as well, and and so we stepped. They were waiting for us to finish filming, and so I was like, I put the camera down. So it's like, yeah, you can go past. I'm sorry, and they go past, and as soon as they walk past, I just look at them and like, I, it's a crime not to shoot this. It's like a, such a sweet moment with a grandma and a little kid. And so I'm just following behind being really quiet because I don't want them to look around and like suddenly get self-conscious and trying to get this shot. And, um, and then just, you know, you turn her into a robot and it, and it just, in one shot, it just kind of, it's sim very symbolic of the whole movie, you know, which is so hard to contrive to try and contrive that and, and cast that lady and, and create that environment. And you're looking at, and direct the performance. I mean, it's just nuts. So let's talk about the third act of the film. Uh, you, so you, you've had this very naturalistic, almost documentary style approach, largely location based for the for the first part of the film. Then you get to the, the third act is largely the the attack on Nomad. Now, obviously, that is not a location. That is a completely synthetic, uh, you know, uh, partially I'm sure partially constructed, but also CG environment. Talk about that part of the film and the difference. Uh, 
uh, and the pivot that you guys had to make to execute that. One funny thing, and maybe Andrew wants to talk about it, but it, the there are elements of borrowed locations to try to ground interiors of the Nomad. So there were set places that we scouted, um, like Bangkok International Airport, um, that were going to um, be used for parts of Nomad. Um, but then because of COVID, a couple of days before we were due to go there, um, the, the you know our um, rights were revoked. And so that would have been an easy time to you know kick the can and say, okay, well, let's just find a, a local studio and put up some blue, blue screen, capture the performance, and we'll figure out what that portion should look like. Uh, but I recall after us wrapping one night, um, Gareth and Oren and um, our locations team and our first AD all hopped in a van, and then we were driving around to different parts of Bangkok trying to find a, a location that would sub in for at least the, you know, sort of, the foundation of Nomad. And um, we found a train station, there was a convention center, there were just different locations where you had the, the polished concrete and the um, slanted um, um, walls that uh, just sort of matched that architecture. So uh, that was great, just having that insistence on, we wanna shoot something real um, and then build on top of it. And I think that made all the difference. You see Alfie running down these corridors and you know her reflections and the floor or the wall or the way that the lighting works, um, that we just really get a lot out of having that production value and that commitment to capturing something real and building on top of that for Nomad. So the, the golden rule of the, sh the film was was always shoot in a real location. Like it was like a mantra. There was two exceptions, which were, which we felt, well, firstly, we felt well, there's, we can't find a location like this. So there's basically in, in the end of the movie, there's this, we call it biosphere. So this big glass kind of greenhouse environment with, with like tall grass, space outside the sun. It's a really hard thing to do because if you shoot at, you know, the only way you can get black sky is shoot at night, but then you won't have the sun, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it's all kinds of issues. So we were like, this is a good candidate to play around with stagecraft. And, um, and then there was another little big section of Nomad with the escape pod bay, which became like, well, we can't really find an environment like that. And equally, we wanted to do some stuff in stagecraft just out of like, for me, it was like, pure curiosity as a filmmaker. Like we'd, we'd done a bit of LED in cockpits on Rogue One with Greg Fraser and then like they'd pushed that all the way to Mandalorian and then, you know, now it's just stagecraft for everyone. Um, so we played with that and, and it's an absolutely fascinating tool because it really throws your brain. Um, you stand in an environment and you forget you're in a soundstage because you've kind of got nearly a 360 view of an alley that's all illuminated and you really start to think you're on a space station. And the other great advantage of it is you can wheel stuff out and wheel in a new set and ready to, sh and all the environment just gets like, it's not a push of a button, but we'll pretend it is just comes up on the screen. And I think it's two buttons. And, and then it, and then what happens is you, you, in your brain, you're now somewhere else. And you, I would talk when I was talking to the crew and I'd say yesterday when we shot in and I'd be pointing to it, like it was far away. And they were like, no, 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 we were here. Like right where you're stood. And you're like, oh God. Yeah. You know, cause it just, it was a trick of the mind and it, and it, and it's great for actors. You really feel like you're there. There's no, it's definitely a green screen killer. I would say. Like LED screens for me are a green screen color, no doubt about it. Get rid of green screen, please. Never see it again. Thank you. But um, but the but equally to be fair on Nomad, we also interiors. We tried a few things like Andrew was saying, where we shot in like futuristic convention centers and train stations, and did our thing of changing the the background and 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 if any if the actors touched anything, we had actual physical consoles and futuristic doorways. Uh, that we reused about 10 times in the whole movie, just repainted them. We only had one. So we just, this is some poor art department people were repainting it every day to a different color to be on the next set tomorrow and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was like the whole spectrum from, you know, five people in the Himalayas with a camera to the world's most expensive technology and most sophisticated uh, real-time rendering you know, in Pinewood, it was like, and that was within a week, you know, it was kind of really surreal. Yeah, very whiplash. Yeah. The, 
the thing with the volume from the cinematography perspective is the lighting. It's a light source in and of itself, right? Exactly. And so the advantage of it is, is even though it's this, it's the, the, the state of the art, very expensive, very tricky technology that requires many people to uh, upkeep from a technology side, from a design side, everything. The end result of it is actually you're simplifying the visual effects process back to what it would be like if you were actually stepped on a location. The great thing about stepping onto a location is there's you can light a location, but if you're embracing even just a little bit of natural light or available light, there's an element of randomness to that that is very difficult to artificially replicate, and and that you don't you wouldn't want to artificially replicate because you could you'll you'll always fall short of what the natural beauty and the randomness of the light, the sun coming in at just the right angle and skipping off of some prop in the background and giving the actor a little kick on the, like you can artificially recreate that, but it's very time consuming, very, very particular and um, was antithetical to the, the way we were making the film, which was embrace the randomness in, of it. So when you end up on the volume, what those, what those virtual environments do is they create the, that same opportunity that you would get on a location. There's a randomness to the lighting that's reflecting off of a piece of physical set that, that that's then bouncing up on the actor that's coming off of the LED walls that you would get on a location because there would be some light source in the background that's accidentally pinging off of this railing and giving the actor a little kicker light. And it's that little layer of randomness that I think helps sell the illusion. And not only that, but it's that it's what separates it from shooting on green screen. Because when you're shooting on green screen, you have to artificially recreate all of the lighting. There is no random kick of anything off of anything. So that's how you end up with a disconnect between your foreground plate and your backgrounds because sometimes there's something in there and then VFX has to come in and add artificial lighting in the foreground and there's amazing things they can do. But like you can get it in camera on the volume um, for free, quote unquote, it's not free. It's actually quite expensive. But uh, the... Um, the, uh, the the effect of it on set once the camera's up is it feels like it's stuff that you're getting for free that you don't have to like layer in on top of it. So it's really cool. Definitely an authenticity. That's I think that's the thing that's so important. It's not just the, the kick lighting and the little crazy reflections um, happening. It's they're inspiring, you know. And so like when you don't have them, you go when it's green screen it's just some guy in the foreground you're like well i guess it's just the guy in the foreground right and you like you forever a green screen compose a shot to look good with nothing there and this outline but in reality when you have someone sculpted by light and in the background is all kinds of interesting light and darks you they never do that shot you find a completely different thing and and when you use green screen all you're doing it's a it's a nightmare um all you're doing in all the post is trying to reverse engineer why the hell someone would have picked this as the shot. And you stick in the default environment and you just go, it looks boring. And, and the reality is if it was really there, the cameraman, the DOP, these world-class DOPs would never have picked that. They would have gone, oh, oh shit, okay, well, no, 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 this is way cooler. And so you get, you get in a real pickle with it really fast. And, and having an LED screen with something there, it just, it means compositionally, Everything makes sense. Like you've got a nice composition each time. You know, I mean, you've even if you're changing things that are there with the sci-fi versions of those shapes and lights and darks, it's just always you're starting from a place where it's always a solid image. You know, which was like I think the biggest takeaway from this film that I will definitely do again, and I think everyone probably feels the same way is if you shoot real things, even if you replace every single thing, there's something about that image that just feels someone was seeing that and someone chose that because it has it makes sense from a cinematography point of view. It's interesting seeing how, Gareth, you would uh, respond and kind of be organic and dynamic based on what you were seeing in the volume. And then also you see how it affects the actors. Uh, they have something to respond to, um, something that just sort of they, they lighten up. They're not imagining, oh, there's a thing over there and you're scared of it. You know, uh, you see it. You see the walls moving in the, in the airlock. Um, and, and I think it just generates um, a more authentic performance. So it was really interesting seeing that part of it too. It's a great science fiction movie, but the performances in the creator are just fantastic. And I think that 
all of the pain that you guys went through in terms of process, figuring out this new way of working was really in, in, in service of the, of the performances. Uh, and, and it, it's just fantastic work. You guys have been so generous with your time. One final question quickly before you go. Uh, I got the experience of seeing the creator in, uh, in a Dolby cinema, glorious Dolby vision and Dolby Atmos. Uh, just quickly kind of curious about your experiences working in Dolby vision and what is that, uh, what, what does that unlock for you, uh, story-wise? In terms of image acquisition, um, you know, knowing that I was on set and making sure that when I'm shooting my HDRI, so I've got the eight millimeter lens and I'm shooting, you know, five stops up and down and really trying to get a snapshot on the full dynamic range, the lighting range of each location, the dappled light in the jungle or the reflected light off of the beach, um, that that becomes a foundation that we pass on to the lighting team that then they can render with, with that full range, knowing that it will be translated faithfully into Dolby Vision. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same for me. I mean, as a consumer of movies, like I'll go see a movie in Dolby whenever it's available. Like that's my preferred format. So just because of the expanded dynamic range and the highlights, um, and in the shadows and, and the Atmos is like, it's just, it's just so immersive. And this movie was all about immersion and it was all about transporting an audience into a world that feels tangible and real. And so, you know, the more immersive the format, the, the better it is. And also, yeah, just as a, as a lighting and camera nerd, you know, we, we shoot with these cameras that have all this dynamic range. Um, it, the, the, the little FX3 that we shot on has a 15 stop dynamic range. That's 15 stops of exposure. And when you go see it in, in regular range, like it's all compressed down into um, what you would see in a regular theater or, or on TV. So the expanded uh, dynamic range is really nice. And um, we worked with Photochem did our post-production, our colorist was Dave Cole. They they do a, a different color grade for Dolby by expanding the dynamic range a little bit into the highlight and the shadow. So it just gives everything a little bit more punch and a little bit more depth in the shadow. It's it's really, really cool to see. I think they did a great job. There's this sort of temptation when talking about camera technology that the more it is like reality, the better. And I just completely disagree with that because what you're trying to do when you make a film is is create a sort of dreamlike best memory of something rather than the reality of it. The reality is boring. The reality is your iPhone taking a picture. It doesn't look great. You know, okay, there's new iPhone things and stuff, but it, it looks like, you know, YouTube versus cinema. And, and so you're always limiting things. So in, in, in post-production, when you make a film, you are, you are compressing things. You're, you're making shadows more simple. You're making colors more likable. You're doing all this work to, to make it feel how you remembered it rather than what it really was, like a more a, a better experience. But then you do all that, and the biggest deflating moment for a filmmaker is you do all this stuff, and you get very, very specific with it, and you give it the big thumbs up, and you go to the cinema, and you watch it, and you go, this isn't what's going on. This is, looks nothing like what we did. This is really dark, or this is really like everything's skewed and, and you talk to projectionists and you talk to studios and things and there's panic moments and everyone's like, well, no, this is, there's nothing wrong with us. It's you. And you're like, well, no, it didn't look like that when we were doing it. And it happens again and again in all formats. It's a nightmare. And, and Dolby Vision is like, you sit in there and you go, this is exactly how it has been looking to us for the last six months, you know? And it, it's like, if, if you, if I'm ever paranoid, about someone and I want them to have the experience that we intended, I, you say, go see it in Dolby Vision. I'm a little bit like Oren. I think I, I think of it more as a film watcher and a film goer that I, I'm like, I want all the bells and whistles and that's why I seek it out, honestly, especially with regards to audio or like, oh yeah, I can feel that going, like I can feel that going over my head and receiving the background. And I know that just from my, and you know, one of the things that's really interesting having done all this, this press recently is I'm very focused in my lane in the visual effects lane and getting to hear from the sound guys of what is going into their process and learning about the 64 channel mix and, and things like that. I was like, wow, you, why would I, why would I ever seek out anything else that wasn't that, that takes advantage of all the work they put into it. And this this movie does have a fantastic sound mix, uh, and I'm so pleased. So pleased that those guys also have gotten recognized for it, which is which is really fantastic. Gentlemen, you've been so generous with your time. Really appreciate you coming on the Dolby Podcast today to talk to us. Oren, Jay, 
Andrew, Gareth, congratulations on the film. Remarkable achievement. And thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Many thanks to Gareth, Oren, Jay, and Andrew for joining us on the podcast today. Best of luck on March 10th at the 96th Academy Awards coming to you live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Industrial Light and Magic for helping us put this conversation together during a very busy awards season. This was our first ever conversation about visual effects. If you liked it, be sure to tell us in the comments. We might do some more of these down the road. And speaking of award season, our ongoing coverage of the 2024 Oscars continues. So if you'd like to hear more conversations with even more of the nominees, be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. We will continue to offer these in-depth interviews filled with unique insights into the work of each of these nominated artists, which may make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you are an Academy voter or you simply want to do better in your annual Oscar office pool. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube and our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, this is Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm.